are listening to This Tangled Skate, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode three for February 29th, 2016. My collection of M's is a fine one. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, though not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Ravelry as Plexippa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. My collection of M's is a fine one, said he. Moriarty himself is enough to make any letter illustrious. And here is Morgan the Poisoner, and Meridu of abominable memory, and Matthews, who knocked out my left canine in the waiting room at Charing Cross, and finally, here is our friend of tonight. So says Sherlock Holmes in The Empty House, speaking, of course, of Sebastian Moran. I am reading from my... Doubleday Complete Sherlock Holmes, with preface by Christopher Morley, which was published in the 1930s, and I picked up my copy at my favorite local used bookstore for $7.50, which I think is not too bad, considering the jacket price says that it was $7.95 originally. As we come to the end of February and look forward to the month of March, I've got a few things starting with M on my mind. First, today's tea. I'm drinking Molly Hooper, another Cara McGee blend available on Adagio. It contains chamomile, dewy cherry, and snowbud, and I love it so much I have the five-ounce tin of it. The site description says it's naturally sweet, mild, and most importantly, calming and soothing. It's sweet enough to drink plain, but since I have a ridiculous sweet tooth, I like a bit of honey in it. It's recommended on the site to brew the tea at 205 degrees Fahrenheit for four minutes. I am inordinately pleased that I can now very closely approximate this, since I got a new kettle. My previous kettle had a knob that you could turn to set the temperature at 170 for green tea, 212 for black tea, or somewhere in between. The new kettle has six different buttons, set for temperatures for black, French press, oolong, white, green, and delicate. French press is 200 degrees which is what I now use for my Molly Hooper tea. The delicate setting is 160, and I use that for any blend with gunpowder tea in it, since I've learned the hard way that those leaves turn bitter if I so much as look at them funny while they're brewing. The new kettle was a birthday present. It was the second present I got from my spouse, the first being a Star Wars Amigurumi crochet kit. The day after my birthday, I received a package in the mail from my dad, the DK Sherlock Holmes book and a Funko Pop Sherlock Holmes figure to go with the John Watson figure I already had. So for my birthday, I got yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, in exactly that order. The M word in my yarn wrangling life these days is mochi mochi land. These are the knitted creations dreamt up by Anna Horakovic, and I love them. My nine-year-old daughter loves them too. I know this because she recently pulled my copy of Huge and Huggable Mochi Mochi off the shelf and promptly marked four or five projects she'd like me to make for her. 
The next day, she had my copy of Super Scary Mochi Mochi and told me she'd really, really like me to knit her a sarcophagus. That night, I got home from work, and she had bookmarked nearly every single pattern in my copy of Teeny Tiny Mochi Mochi. I knit up a teeny tiny little ghost for her after she went to bed. The teeny tiny mochi mochi patterns tend to be pretty quick to knit, and they're great for using up small amounts of sock yarn, which I have in abundance. I'm about to have a few more yards, since I'm nearly finished with the Irene Adler socks. I've completely finished the main part of the socks, actually, with the black and white self-striping yarn, and I've finished one heel with the red contrast yarn. One more heel, and then weaving it ends, and I'll have new stripey socks. Striped socks. That's another thing Little Miss thinks I ought to make for her. I think it's time for us to revive our knitting lessons, and then she can knit all the things herself. Until a few weeks ago, the big M-word in my life was the word marathon. On Valentine's Day, I did the L.A. Marathon, or as it's properly known, the Skechers Performance Los Angeles Marathon. I say did the marathon rather than ran it, because I probably ran about a third of it. I knew going in that I wasn't as well-trained as I would have liked to have been, thanks to a cold that put me off running sometime in December and kept reasserting itself every time I thought I was actually recovered. I was worried the week before the race that it might keep me out entirely. And then there was the heat. After chilly, rainy weather a couple of weeks before, the weekend of the race was forecasted to be in the 80s. I heard the U.S. Olympic marathon trials, which were held in L.A. on the 13th, the day before the marathon, were the warmest marathon trials on record. With all that, I couldn't be too disappointed in my own finish time of 6 hours, 44 minutes, and 52 seconds. It was faster than my first marathon back in 2003, and slower than my second in 2011. Following the race, my cold also came roaring back, which is part of why this podcast is going out on the 29th instead of the 27th. The LA Marathon is a point-to-point course. For those of you who aren't running nerds like me, that means the race starts and ends in different places. The route is called Stadium to the Sea. It starts at Dodger Stadium, which is a pretty quick drive from where I live in the San Fernando Valley, then winds its way westward to Santa Monica, with the last mile or so featuring a lovely view of the beach, if you're not too knackered to appreciate it. The race offers free shuttles for participants from Santa Monica to Dodger Stadium hours before the race, so when you arrive, your car is already there. For me, this meant getting up at 3 in the morning and driving about an hour to park in Santa Monica, then getting on a shuttle bus back to Dodger Stadium, where I had an hour and a half or so to kill before the starting gun. Knowing I was going to be on the course a good long time, I didn't want to run the battery in my phone down while waiting around, so I was pondering how I could occupy my time. Sherlockians aren't known for handling boredom well, after all. After I parked in the Civic Center lot, which, by the way, was a good mile from the finish line, I popped open the trunk to get a mylar blanket to keep warm in those pre-sunrise hours, and I found a paperback copy of the last Sherlock Holmes story there. It was there because I was planning on taking it to the used bookstore to sell, the same used bookstore where I had recently bought a hardcover copy of the same book, and I figured I really didn't need two copies. So I took the book with me. I found a patch of ground in the Dodger Stadium parking lot and read about half the book before I really had to get in the corral with the other runners. I left the book behind for whoever might want to pick it up, since I was not about to carry it 26 miles to Santa Monica. I picked up where I left off in my hardcover copy the next day and finished it. It was... interesting. I gave it four stars on Goodreads because I thought the writing was very good. Didbin does a good Watson, even if I'm not quite buying the version of Holmes he's selling there. And here I'd like to give anyone who hasn't read it and would like to remain unspoiled fair warning. 
here be spoilers. I went into the book already knowing the twist. It came up on an episode of Baker Street Babes and someone, I think it was Lindsay Fay, said it was the book where Sherlock Holmes is Jack the Ripper, having turned to crime because he's so terribly bored. I don't remember if they mentioned that Moriarty is also a product of Holmes's ravings. I say ravings because this particular Holmes really does seem to have come unhinged. I came out of the book unclear on how much even Holmes understood about what he had been doing, and how much of his bizarre story he was making up, and how much of it he actually believed. I do wonder how I would have reacted if I hadn't known from the beginning that Holmes was, in fact, the murderer he was purportedly trying to catch. As it was, I found myself repeatedly asking, but, but wait, what about everything in the empty house and everything after that? Which, of course, did been answers quite reasonably. I read the book partly because I was curious about it and partly because I wanted to check off item number one on the Book Riot Read Harder 2016 challenge list, a horror book. It was also supposed to count for the Mount TBR challenge, but since I switched from my old paperback copy to my new hardback copy halfway through, I'm not sure it does. I'm also not sure that I'd really classify the last Sherlock Holmes story as horror, honestly, though enough people on Goodreads certainly do. Perhaps it's just me, but... I tend to think of horror as having a supernatural element, which this book most certainly does not. Well, despite a serious infatuation with Stephen King novels in my teen years, horror isn't really my genre in any case. In a much lighter vein, I also finished reading Paula Berenstein's Amanda Lester and the Pink Sugar Conspiracy. This is the first volume in her middle grade series that's sort of a Nancy Drew meets Harry Potter, minus any actual wizardry. Amanda Lester is a 12-year-old California girl who desperately wants to become a professional filmmaker. She would also desperately like to forget that she happens to be descended from Inspector G. Lestrade. But her parents aren't about to let that happen. They're determined that their daughter will become a detective, and they've decided to send her to a top-secret boarding school in England, especially for the training of descendants of famous detectives. Amanda is, understandably, not thrilled with this plan. But... She's whisked off to the Lake District and deposited at Legatum Continuatum, where she's promptly cut off from all contact with any former friends by the school's secrecy oaths and ban on social media. Of course, she makes some new friends and at least one enemy, and that's before she really gets involved in trying to solve a mystery that appears to involve a growing conspiracy all around her. In the description on the back of the book, it says, Amanda's father disappears and the cook is found dead with her head in a bag of sugar which I kind of wish it didn't, since those things don't even happen until halfway through, so I spent an awfully long time waiting for those events. There's a certain amount of necessary world-building going on in that first half of the book, but still. And I'm not even addressing the last sentence on the back of the book, which mentions a character who, while not unexpected by anyone even a little bit familiar with Holmes, is not revealed until the very end of the book. I also strongly suspect that a certain event toward the end did not have quite the outcome it seems to Amanda to have had, but I'll not give that away just yet. The second and third books of the series are already out, and I'm going to have to get my hands on copies of those. I'll let you know if my suspicions bear out. Before I get to those, though, I'll want to finish A Study in Charlotte by Brittany Cavallaro. I started reading an electronic arc courtesy of Edelweiss, but the book is slated for publication tomorrow, March 1st, and I'm on the holds list for a copy at the library. It's a book for teens and another contemporary novel featuring descendants of canonical characters. Jamie Watson is the 16-year-old great-great-grandson of Dr. John H. Watson, while Charlotte Holmes is Sherlock's great-great-granddaughter, but they don't meet until they both become students at Sharingford, a fancy prep school in Connecticut. 
I'm only a chapter or so in, but I'm enjoying it so far. I've just received a couple of new graphic novels, too. First is Sherlock Holmes' Crime Alleys by Sylvain Cordurier and Alessandro Nespolino, translated by Laura Dupont. I understand that this is actually the third Sherlock graphic novel by Cordurier, though I haven't read the first two. The other book I've received is Dynamite's Sherlock Holmes, Volume 3, Moriarty Lives, which I will read just as soon as I get to Volume 2, The Liverpool Demon, which has been on my shelf an embarrassingly long time. I'm also still looking forward to the new publications from the John H. Watson Society that are coming out in April. I've ordered a copy of the new monograph, Leah Gwynn's Sherlock Holmes and the Challenge of the Blank Page. I had a brief moment of confusion over why I hadn't also ordered The Adventure of the Doctor and the Duelist, the volume in the fiction series, until I remembered that society members will receive a copy along with the spring issue of The Watsonian. The Adventure of the Doctor and the Duelist is a new story from the fabulous Eleanor Gray, who wrote the beautiful The Tenderness of Patient Minds that was in the October 2015 Watsonian. The Adventure of the Doctor and the Duelist takes place shortly after the great hiatus and, the shop synopsis promises, illuminates a critical turning point in the nature of the intimate friendship of Watson and Holmes. The book will also feature illustrations from the extremely talented Basil Chap, whose art I adore. I'll link to their artwork commissions page on Tumblr in the show notes, since it has a nice sample of their work. For the last couple of years, they've had comics in the Baker Street Journal, so you might be familiar with their work from there, but that relationship has ended for reasons they explain at ghostbees.tumblr.com. I wasn't sure if I should even bring that up, but I felt like if I didn't, it would be something of an elephant in the room. I subscribe to the Baker Street Journal, and I enjoy it very much. I've had some lovely interactions with the editor on Twitter, though I don't know him, or Basil for that matter, personally. I am deeply thankful to Basil for posting their account of what happened, not because they have to justify anything to me or anybody else, but because it gave me a deeper understanding of the situation. Likewise, I'm thankful to Ashley Polisek for posting her account on Facebook. Yes, I'll link to that too. It would have been completely understandable for either or both of them to retreat rather than reach out, and I, for one, am grateful for the opportunity to learn. One last M. Well, two. March Madness. I'm not really talking about the basketball tournament, though. I'm talking about the tournament of books hosted by The Morning News. I heard about it through the Books on the Nightstand podcast, which also provided a really helpful explanation of brackets and seeds and such. I had an idea of what tournament seeds were, but I didn't know that the number one seed goes up against the last seed. This got me thinking, as many things do, I'll admit, about the canon. What if there were a tournament to determine the best story? I briefly considered trying to determine seeding order, but that's not something I'm prepared to do. So I decided to seed them by the order in which they appear in my Doubleday. And I removed the novels, because I think they really deserve their own bracket. This gave me some interesting matchups: A Scandal in Bohemia versus The Retired Colorman. The Resonant Patient versus Wisteria Lodge. The Yellow Face versus The Devil's Foot. The Speckled Band versus The Sussex Vampire. Those last two sound like entries in some sort of horror movie franchise, don't they? With 56 stories... That makes for a lot of matches in round one. And then there's a bit of a snag in round four, because 56 halves to 28, which halves to 14, which halves to... seven. Hmm. That might be a good spot for a zombie entry, like in the morning news's Tournament of Books. 
The whole thing is sort of the opposite of a project I'm currently working on for Chris Redmond, who's compiling a collection of essays from 60 different people, each explaining why one particular story is the best story in the canon. I'm arguing for Charles Augustus Milverton. Hey, look, another M. Which is, of course, the very best story in the entire canon. Hmm. Maybe I lack the impartiality to judge this tournament of adventures after all. Well, that's all I have for this month, so until next time, I bid you goodbye. You've been listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at thistangledskein.com. I can be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Reviews or star ratings on iTunes are always appreciated. <laughs>